Okay, so Dr. Andrew McIntyre is a gastroenterologist and metabolic health practitioner with almost a decade of experience treating and reversing his patients' conditions with diet. So uh, thanks for being on the show, Andrew. Yeah, no, thanks for the invite. Great. Um, and you, you mentioned to me just previously that perhaps up to 90% of your work as a gastroenterologist was related to people's consumption of processed food. Can you expand a little bit on this point? Yeah, well, I, I guess I've probably been doing it for six or seven years. Um, and during that process, I really started measuring, uh, you know, waist-height ratio routinely and looking at lipids routinely. So it's really a question of um, how many people have significant disturbance in those parameters and... Um, you know, I think it's a very high percentage of my patients, you know, that, that actually have those parameters significantly out of whack. So, and, you know, you just a simple thing as looking at people's triglycerides is um, an important aspect of it. So, and, uh, I mean, I also have a software company, Medical Objects, so we've got a lot of decision support stuff that... um automatically calculates things like triglyceride HDL ratio and things like that. So that allows me to look at those parameters automatically from lipid profiles. And we also, every patient we get, we tend to request their recent results. So, um, and often people have lipid profiles, even if they're coming in for just a, you know, an open access endoscopy. So, or colonoscopy. So those parameters uh, are often available. And based on waist height ratio and lipids, um, the the incidence of significant metabolic disturbance amongst the patients is high. Now, I guess you have to compare it with the incidence in the general population. But my experience is that if you can correct those parameters, uh, people tend to get better. And, um, you know, you, you end up with the feeling that you've been practicing Band-Aid medicine for a long time and, um, you know, not really looking at root cause. So it's probably made me a lot more interested in medicine, really, because you can actually fix some problems at, at, at the sort of primary cause rather than, you know, what has been like Band-Aid medicine, really. For, for a long time. So, you know, I also do, a, well, I used to before I was mandated out, do a lot of uh, ERCP. So looking at patients with pancreatic cancer, you know, almost to a T, they have evidence of metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance. So I've been also been doing a lot of, you know, fasting insulin glucose to calculate Homer IR scores and things like that. So, so basically, I have a ten. You know, for people I'm seeing again, I tend to um, do their metabolic parameters and follow them over time. So, um, and I mean, you know, like any intervention, not everyone is interested, but um, the people who are generally respond very well and. You know, fatty liver shows spectacular response to low-carb diets, and we've got good evidence for that. So, um, 
it's still not really a mainstream activity, unfortunately, but it's gradually catching on, I think. Yeah, great. And uh, what Dr. McIntyre is referring to specifically are biochemical markers. So when you go and get a blood test, the doctors will look at will look at the different parameters of your blood markers, your liver function, your lipid profile, um, your fasting insulin level, and a range of other markers that basically give us an idea about your metabolic health. So Dr. McIntyre, can you explain this concept to some, a layman, someone who might not understand what metabolic health is or what it means? How would you describe that concept? Well, it's really how you process nutrients, I think, the, the efficiency and particularly how you process glucose. And um, in, in, in many cases, it's, it's disturbed. And what you see often is people lacking in energy, but excessive nutrients so they're 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 overweight but you know i i used to doubt people that said i don't eat much but uh, i now realize that that their metabolism is so impaired that their energy they're not burning as much energy as they should and they feel tired and i guess you know um Probably our innate mechanisms of feeling tired are fairly sophisticated. So, if someone's tired, they 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 have a lack of energy supply, and that is really a sign of poor metabolic health. And it seems to be, you know, insulin resistance is a part of that. In that, they're not actually get metabolizing glucose getting it into cells and burning it for energy so they are listless and tired basically so um so that's um really what metabolic health is and in the modern setting it's insulin resistance and you know that is certainly something that appears to be new in that i think the last time i checked diabetes has gone up 800 percent since 19 60 thereabouts type 2 diabetes so um something has caused a change and it's unlikely to be genetic in that period of time so there are really the big changes are the introduction of dietary guidelines uh, a marked increase in refined carbohydrates but also a marked increase in the consumption of vegetable oil over saturated fat and, you know, I, I do think the latter may well be a significant component of it as, as more of a root cause because, um, you know, some cultures don't eat a lot of sugar as such, but, um, but they still have the same metabolic health problems. So, you know, China, for instance, has a higher incidence of type 2 diabetes than the US, but their obesity is much less. And they don't eat the same amounts of sugar, but they're certainly consuming vegetable oil in you know compared to what they used to. And the same in India, um, there's what they call vegetable ghee rather than you know butter-based ghee. So, and, and they have a high incidence of uh, ischemic heart disease. And uh, my view is that obesity is just an adaptive mechanism to metabolic dysfunction it's like 
shove this glucose into into fat somewhere, and it's it actually doesn't cause terrible problems until you reach a point where you can't put any more in there, and you know, and like the Chinese don't appear to be able to become as obese as Westerners. So there is a discord between obesity and metabolic dysfunction. Some of that's some of that's probably genetic, and it probably reflects, you know, uh, heritage of high carb sort of diets. Perhaps I don't know. Europeans seem to be able to get fatter, and it probably protects them until they reach a point where, you know, they can't get any any fatter than they are. In which case, it spills over into the blood, and you end up with diabetes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and um, I guess I guess most people have heard of diabetes, and they understand that as a kind of a discrete disease. But what I don't think that most people realize is that we've got a spectrum of metabolic dysfunction, and a frank di- diagnosis of type two diabetes is basically at the late stage of that at that process. Oh yeah. So, so I, I mean, teenagers. Um, I've seen lots of um, teenagers and things like. Uh, PCOS, polycystic ovarian disease, irritable bowel reflux in young people, they often have insulin resistance and they're often not overweight. And, I mean, it's interesting that people with, um, you can get a fat disorder, I can't think of the name of it at the moment, where you can't lay down much subcutaneous fat. And those people have the worst metabolic disorder because they don't have a buffer. And really, uh, body fat is a buffer. Or, you know, uh, excess glucose in your blood gets turned into body fat. Once you fill that up, then it, it ends up in your liver and you end up with visceral fat, which is a marker of metabolic dysfunction. So, which yeah. is why waist height ratio is so useful. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that was going to be my, my next question, which is a young person can come in with these health conditions that are related to insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction, but they might not recognize or, or realize that they're on this pathway to quite a severe condition. But no, something, no, lo- something like mm. a waist circumference or a waist height ratio, which is a, basically a division of both of the height over the waist circumference, is a really early and good indicator and proxy for metabolic dysfunction. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. It's It's it almost gets to the point where that's a good enough test. Like, you know, in a low-tech way, I've been doing, you know, a lot of insulins and things like that to sort of confirm my impression. But in in the end, waist-height ratio is probably a pretty good proxy for it all. And um, it's almost enough. I guess over time I've gradually almost moved away from from worrying about all the other tests and using that as a primary marker. And it's a very cheap, low-tech marker, but it's very useful. And, and, you know, you have lots of people with a normal BMI, but a disturbed waist-height ratio, like particularly Asians. So they are um, they don't tend to get obese and they can have a normal weight, but their waist-height ratio is still disturbed and I've certainly seen those people 
come good moving away from using canola oil, for instance, to using saturated fat for cooking, it, that change on its own seems to make a big difference. So, um, so I do think that the omega-6 oils are an important part of it. I mean, we don't have all the large trials that we should have because there is no pharmacological value in this. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, you tend to take people off drugs. So um, following this path is not very good for drug sales, that's for sure. But there's lots of small studies that show amazing effects. And um, I think... Um, we need to move away from this idea that a large multi-center randomized control trial is the only way of deciding anything in medicine because I think it's it biases us to you know vested interests um, because those big studies cost many millions of dollars so you need someone who's going to benefit to pay for them and it, you know the the government doesn't seem to be capable of running anything like that so. Um, we need to accept that smaller studies, a bit of clinical observation, um, can give you pretty good answers. Um, there was a, it was published in Cell Biology, I think, a study of ten people with fatty liver who were put on a, you know, a keto level diet, twenty grams of carbohydrate a day, and they were fed macadamias to try and avoid weight loss. And over two weeks, they lost 50% of liver fat, all 10 of them. So, you know, the odds of all 10 people losing this enormous amount of liver fat, and that's not the only thing that happened. Their microbiome improved, all sorts of other things improved. Um, you know, the odds of that being by chance are, are virtually nil, but people would go, oh, 10 patients, uh, it's not relevant, but it's highly relevant because they studied everything very closely. And, you know, to me, that study is uh, very good evidence that it, that it works. And clinically, people's chronic abnormal liver tests will come back to normal within a month often. So um, and it's basically losing liver fat that um, that that improves things but even even then the improvement certainly precedes weight loss because i think you know your peripheral fat is pretty benign in general it doesn't cause trouble but your visceral fat does cause trouble and it may only be a kilo of fat but you know you tend to get rid of that first so the improvement uh, of burning a kilo of visceral fat is enormous, um, even if people don't lose weight. I mean, they can gain weight and still get better. So uh, I, the, the evidence is certainly there and certainly, you know, there's multiple trials, even on weight loss, that show yeah. superiority of low-carb diets. Yeah. And it's through change of metabolism. Mm. And I guess the interesting thing is that we're really – proposing a, an entirely new model of disease related to your waist circumference, which is a proxy for your visceral fat. And we're dispensing with this idea that obesity per se is, is the, I guess, the root of the problem. And yeah. I think for so long, so many people have been 
led to believe that it's the obesity itself rather than where that obesity and where that fat is being stored. And as you've mentioned, you can have people with a normal BMI who have a large amount of very, very metabolically dangerous um, visceral tissue. And you can have conversely have quite an overweight person with normal metabolic health parameters. So I think as as doctors, um, we're, what we're trying to do is re or push this idea that it's not your total BMI. BMI can be helpful as a secondary or a taken in context type of marker, but it's the fat around the organs, which is best proxied by your waist circumference that is the most dangerous type of fat. And as you have, have mentioned, is a risk factor for um, or, or occurs in people who have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, reflux, and who are having these biliary and, and gastrointestinal cancers at a, a, a dangerously or a a dangerously young age. Yeah, and I think um, the young age is obviously a concern and we've certainly seen an increase in young people with bowel cancer and pancreatic cancer too. And, um, you know, I, the the studies from the past of um, colonisation suggest two decades of Western food is enough to induce Western diseases. Um, so if if you're 20 and you've been eating processed food all your life, which many people have, you know you you're, you're at risk of problems um, in your 20s. And we've certainly seen more type 2 diabetes, um, bowel cancers at an increasing, you know, increasingly younger age. And when you look at what's in children's lunch boxes and what their um, school tax shop is selling it's um it's probably not a surprise if 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 it you know and i think it is processed food which is very rich in sugar and vegetable oil um then if that's that's the low fat way so to speak and you know the the pernicious influence of guidelines is that things like tax shops are following them so we're feeding our children um, high omega-6, high sugar foods to reduce fat. And um, I know particularly in the US, it's like you can't have whole milk, but low-fat chocolate milk is an acceptable um, thing for a, for a, you know for a school child, and it's quite ridiculous. I mean, there's there's solid evidence that children having full-fat milk are less obese than children having low-fat milk. And the other myths of eggs, I mean, um, you know, even totally mainstream nutrition now doesn't condemn eggs. They, they are certainly a health food, but I run into it all the time of particularly elderly patients who are trying to do the right thing, avoiding eggs, and there really are a very good, I think there's six grams of protein in an egg, so, you know, particularly, you know, I, I see it in sort of widowed, older women living alone and they're having toast and jam and oh, I don't eat much meat and you eat many eggs, I'll know more than two a week. And it's like, well, you should have eggs for breakfast every day, you know, and they're horrified at that thought because eggs are dangerous. So the Mainstream nutrition, while it may have shown that eggs are not a concern, 
They've not made any noise about it. So much of the population still thinking that eggs are bad. And a lot of those people would do much better, you know, and it's a simple, relatively cheap, um, easy to do on your own sort of source of food. So, mm. uh, you know, I try and push eggs onto those people. Yeah. Yeah, but you still meet resistance because mm. these myths are persistent. Yeah, and the authorities have not really tried to undo the myths that they mm. created. So yeah, so it is a concern, and I mean yeah, and and Andrew, I know I've I've seen the same thing in in my practice. I've seen patients who are earnestly trying to do the best thing by their mm. health, based upon what they've been told. And they do have fatty liver. They do have markers of metabolic yeah. syndrome and metabolic dysfunction. And they're being let down. And I, I think that's not right. And I think that it isn't fair that someone who is trying to do the right thing is having such a, a, an outcome that's leading to disease based upon what they've been told. And, and as you mentioned, the kind of uh, narratives around the harm of animal foods like eggs, like saturated fat, like red meat, these narratives are unraveling and the shaky foundation of science, which is usually nutritional epidemiology upon which these narratives were built is, is crumbling. You know, as the tide comes in, the, the foundation's washing away yet the mainstream narrative is not following up with messaging that supports or is in concert with this, this kind of scientific realisation. So you have a situation where people are still avoiding eggs, they are still avoiding fat, full-fat dairy, they are still avoiding red meat, and they're thinking they're doing the right thing. I mean, it's it's very, very, very unfortunate. Oh, yeah, and it's an alarm. If somebody says to, you know, like I, I've made a practice of talking to every patient about their diet, and the biggest alarm signal is, but I eat a good diet. If people who say that, you know, ninety-five um, percent of them are following outdated guidelines, and it's 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 a red flag if somebody says that. Um, and they, they are trying to do the right thing. That's the silly part about it is that often the people who are trying the hardest to do the right thing are the worst off because uh, they're 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 following advice which is bad and they're following it religiously so um it's you know the fear of saturated fat is is so ridiculous we did the 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 evidence was very circumstantial and it's been disproven so um and i think um you know there's evidence things like macular degeneration that that omega-6 in your retina um, which oxidizes on exposure to light could well be a, you know, we've had an explosion in macular degeneration and the oils you eat get into your cells and into the membranes of the cells and the mitochondria and in your eyes they're exposed to light. So they damage your retina and cause macular degeneration. And there's also evidence on things like melanoma which are not sun related that it could be vegetable oil that actually um is a big factor in the increase in that so there, there's there's lots of um well-established 
facts in inverted commas, which appear to be wrong and are actually damaging to people's health. So, and you know, that probably brings in the the vested interest and the vested interests are not only, you know, pharma, but it's also, um, you know, food companies. So, um, you know, high shelf life, very profitable products often produce in response to requests for low-fat food, but they've become a trillion, multi-trillion dollar industry. So, you know, if you say, I mean, often it's a cliche, but I think it's a good cliche is, you know, shop around the edge of your supermarket. Don't don't go into the centre aisles other than to, you know, to buy some olive oil or something like that if you want to. But um, it, it's, it's not profitable to large food companies, basically, because you, you're buying meat, eggs, dairy. It's usually in the fridge and for, for many supermarkets the design is it's around the edges so so that's sort of a fairly good rule um you know in terms of shopping so um but we're facing uphill battle because um really we're asking people to support local farmers and you know rather than multinational companies and all that food is goes off so um it, it's it's sort of harder to make big money out of it but um um the vested interests are a problem i think so mm. so it's 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 an uphill battle to yeah. try and convince people yeah and and that's interesting because you you've mentioned this uphill battle on a couple of different fronts from a medical point of view and as us as doctors for decades the standard of treatment was based on this concept called a randomized control trial and basically anything that we do any drug we we prescribe has to be or essentially backed up by evidence that's generated in this type of trial design um, that that works, especially for drugs, and especially in situations where you can control this, the the intervention mm. and make sure that there's no other confounding factors. But the problem with that approach, uh, especially as it comes to diet, is that it's very difficult to randomise someone to a specific diet, um, and therefore the evidence base that nutrition is founded upon is all observational um, and long term observational data, which is based on a very flimsy type of study called the uh, food food questionnaire um again subject to some to to uh, bias like a recall bias where people will record what they think the uh, investigator will want wants them to say so you've you've got this the problem with the science that backs up nutrition then you've got the vested interests that perhaps are influencing what type of studies get funded and what type of studies get published and then you have the food industry as well so i mean as you outline andrew there's lots of headwinds that are i guess pushing against the individual when they're trying to make a healthy uh, healthy life choice yeah and there's there's headwinds convincing people to try it you know mm-hmm. there are certainly large groups of patients who um really are resistant because it's dangerous and, mm. um you know uh, i think in the end we're saying atkins was right you know, mm. the, and he was certainly vilified, but most of what he said 
has really now been proven. And his sort of scheme of following the diet, I think, is probably still almost the best scheme where you start low and then um, you, you, you can add in a little bit more carbs to a point where it stops working. Okay. So you you often see people like, you know, even some dietitians who are not opposed to low carb, but they'll start at 100 grams a day or something. And for many people, that's too much. So it won't work. Whereas, you know, if you start very low, you'll suffer for a week or 10 days, but you'll see results. And then you can actually slowly creep your carbs up if you want to. And mm. you'll see the effect stop working and you know what your tolerance is. Yeah. So, um, you know, and a lot of the published so-called low-carb is like 40% of the diet. You know, the the guidelines are like 50 55% carbohydrate and they'll call low-carb, you know, 40%. So it's, it's, not, it's not enough to make a difference to yeah. to many people so yeah. um but you know that um, i had one diabetic educator walk out of my consulting room when i suggested she try a low-carb diet and she had fatty liver and all the normal accompaniments of metabolic syndrome but she's been so conditioned of low-fat diets that the mere suggestion of a low-carb diet was so abhorrent to her that she, that she got up and walked out in the middle of a consultation. So there's no chance to explain it or um, show her any evidence. It, it's it's almost religious in, yeah. in some circles. So yeah, and I guess for the listener, what what we're proposing or what we are suggesting um, based on clinical experience is that the best dietary approach for someone who has metabolic syndrome signs of insulin resistance or metabolic dysfunction is a low carbohydrate whole foods diet that replaces Mm. these toxic omega-6 oils fatty acids with saturated animal fat and i guess that that's what what we're talking about here in the dietary approach so so andrew say you have a patient come in she's 25 she's got a raised waist circumference she's got polycystic ovary syndrome and she's an open-minded to trying anything that might help her what is the, the the rough type of advice that you would give a patient like that in your clinic well i just explained to them that that i think it's you know excessive carbohydrate and sugar in the diet that's causing the problems and they're probably genetically predisposed and often they're not that fat but i'll usually point out the waist circumference giving it um and I will give them things like ditchthecarbs.com handouts. They are um, very good and um, suggest they go and do some reading. We use David Unwin's Teaspoons of Sugar cards. We've had some of them printed up. And it's things like, you know, bananas and things like that. So, um, I mean, there's a recent study showing, you know, people who are eating the recommended four serves of fruit a day are doing worse on the fatty liver front than the people that aren't. So, I mean, there's a lot of myths. Plus, there's a change in food. Our fruit 
has become much higher in sugar than it used to be. So, um, and what do they call it? The bliss point. There's no doubt that these foods are, you know, they're addictive. They they are they are yummy and they give people a short term high when they eat eat them and and short term energy. Um, but it's doing a lot of damage and it's it's really all the Western diseases. And, you know, there's a significant effect on fertility as well, plus, you know, diabetes of pregnancy, all of those things are tied up. And I always think that if a low-carb diet does wonders for fertility, that's nature voting. And, you know, if nature, if, if nature thinks your diet is bad, then your fertility, your fertility declines. If nature thinks you've got all the nutrients you need, then nature votes with you on that. So it's, um, you know, there's very little evidence of, well, there's virtually no evidence of harm with them. And even lipid profiles usually improve. And, you know, if people are compliant, sometimes their LDL will go up. But if you do their LDL subfractions, um, they are generally a non-concerning rise in LDL. It's it's a sort of energy transporter, um, and it's the small, dense, oxidized LDL that is the problem. I mean, I do sometimes run, you know, you know it's not uncommon to run into problems where people take the advice up to a point, but they go, oh, I still want to eat bread and I still want to eat my fruit. So, you know, it's somewhere in the middle is not a good place to be so if you if you if you're going low carb you need to go low carb not you know slight reduction in carbs and an increase in fat you basically you need to reduce your carbs enough to get your insulin down and then you will metabolize the fat if you're not if if you don't reduce your carbs enough and you're eating lots of fat then uh, you'll just put put on weight, basically. So, so there is a a point of compliance that you need for it to work, and there are certainly people who don't go far enough, and are, you know they can be worse off if they um, they half they follow the bits they like, but but not the other bits. So that's important to follow people up and just see where they're heading, and yeah. You know, there are a percentage of people if they can't give up those things, you know, they they may be better um, reducing fat in that case, but um, it's I, I don't think it's as ideal. You know, it's sort of like the vegetarian diets are probably better than a processed food diet. I don't think they're optimal, and you're missing out on lots of nutrients. But there's no doubt that. If you're eating a lot of processed foods and you go whole food vegetarian, it's better than a processed food diet. Um, so you can go either way. I certainly think going towards the more animal foods is is a better option, particularly nutrient-wise. Um, but you don't want to be sitting in the middle. It's the middle where... Uh, the danger lies, I think. So yeah, so and I was going to ask you about yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to ask you in terms of your clinical practice and 
your what you've seen of uh, gastrointestinal conditions. Do you see vegetarian or vegans over overrepresented in in any of these diseases? Because this, especially around young people, there is a, a, a very strong societal push towards vegetarian oh, and, yeah. and vegan eating. Um, Certainly uh, causes what are your thoughts on that? Bowel. Certainly causes irritable bowel. And if if it's not a whole food vegetarian diet, then it's often worse. And you see this with like people who um, think they might be gluten intolerant. Um, now, in the past, that probably worked because they, they went on a low-carb diet without knowing it. But now you can go to the supermarket and buy all sorts of processed junk that's gluten-free. So, you know, they, they end up worse off because they end up with lots of sugar and rice flour and things that are gluten-free, but, but they were never available before. You know, celiacs were basically eating meat, eggs and vegetables in the past. Um, you know, somebody came up with gluten-free bread, which um, wasn't that nice, so they didn't eat a lot of it. So they often did very well, whereas now it's easy to eat a very high-processed food diet and be gluten-free, for instance. It's the same with vegetarian. You know, they'll advertise a product which is junk as being vegetarian. So, um like, uh, you know, even my daughter said to me, um, uh, I don't I don't really like coming here because you don't have any food. And I'm going, what do you mean? And uh, Real food. And her answer was something I can open and eat. <laughs> so that's uh, that's her real, that was her real food definition is yeah. a packet that you can rip open and eat. So, um and that's sort of become the norm, and I think it's like party food every day. Yeah. Like, I mean, party food has always existed, but I don't think in the past people had, you know, chips and lollies and all of these things every day. It yeah. Was, it was actually for a birthday or a special occasion. Whereas, you know, like you walk into a garage now to buy petrol and they're, they're actually saying you can get two candy bars for $2, you know, they're pushing them on you and the whole counter is just covered in um, sugar, basically. Yeah. So it, it's, it's everywhere Yeah. You know, in a modern society, whereas, uh, like, I don't know, but I suspect that petrol stations... Um, in the past, sold oil and uh, things like that. They didn't Engine sell, oil. yeah, yeah. No, they didn't sell yeah. Um, sugar. Yeah. So um, it's 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 everywhere, and it's normalised. Snacking is normalised. Mm. Whereas I, you know, the old. Mm. Oh, I was just going to say quickly. I, I agree that, and I feel that the narrative surrounding the vegetarian um, dietary approach is a continuation of this this misleading food narrative where people think they're doing the right thing by their health by going vegetarian. Inevitably, they have they get a craving for nutrient density and energy density yeah. and end up reaching for the 
vegetable oil laden chips, the fries or the ice cream because they're, they're not having their nutritional needs being met by um, a bland um, plant and grain based diet. So it, it is very unfortunate and I would encourage any listener who is perhaps suffering from irritable bowel syndrome, reflux, polycystic ovarian syndrome, take a, take a pause, think about your dietary choices, think about why you've adopted perhaps a vegetarian diet, where has that belief come from, um, examine that belief and then consider adding back in some of these animal animal products consider getting rid of the vegetable oils and all that fast food and and the door delivery food is all cooked in in vegetable and seed oils and see what happens to your health because i mean as you say andrew you your your experience of people patients with irritable bowel syndrome on a low carb whole foods diet is is incredibly successful Mm. it's what i would reach for first Mm. in as i said in 80 or 90 percent of my patients yeah, I'm not saying 80, 90% of the patients take it up, but it's, it would have seemed like the most appropriate treatment. Um, and I joked that I'd just close the rooms and put the low-carb leaflets on the door. And <laughs> I, um, <laughs> Job done. <laughs> Job done, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and for, you know, for most people, for me, majority of people, that, that would probably be true, really. So... Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, fighting a well-embedded narrative is—it's not—it's not going to happen overnight. No. So, um, but I mean, I, I think people need to have less faith in authorities in reality, because yeah. I, I don't think the authorities are competent, and I. I can only assume that there's some conflict of interest in there because there's ample evidence of um, people doing well on low-carb diets, but we still see all this anti-meat narrative, which is nonsense as far as I can see. And um, so, you know, you have to really do a little bit of your own research to actually get to the, the truth of the matter. and. It's certainly a safe alternative. So if you're not doing well, it's worth trying. Trying, yeah. And often improvement is like within weeks, mm, you know. Yeah. I'm I'm then thinking, if we're thinking about first principles, what we've described so far is a diet that basically allows you to get your insulin level low Mm. and guess switch your metabolic mode out of a purely glucose and sugar burning mode to a more fat based burning. Um, metabolic state but it and, and also a diet that provides enough nutrients so we're seeing more and more people try an exclusively meat-based diet like carnivore diet or an animal-based diet what's your experience of this approach in your gastroenterology practice well cats have got a lot of experience because i haven't really had very many patients either on it or even willing to try it. I have suggested in one or two patients with troublesome Crohn's disease that they they could try it because, um, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that, that it can work for those people. Um, I mean, it's they probably do need to eat, you know, a bit of offal and um, not just straight steak to, to mm. get all the nutrients they need. But 
um, you know, you mix it up with some decent quality eggs and things like that, and you probably you're going to cover yourself nutritionally quite well. So um, it certainly has anecdotal evidence of working. I, I'm not sort of, I haven't really been pushing it other than in, in a couple of patients with really troublesome Crohn's disease. I certainly push low carb for people with inflammatory bowel disease. And I can't say that I've had people where it's gone on that, but the level of control has vastly improved is my experience. And it often avoids you going to the next step with a drug. And often that's where they're motivated is they're not controlled and you say, well, we need, we probably need to add in something else, either a immunosuppressant or a biological or something like that, or they're, they're a bit steroid dependent and you really want to get them offered. So it can make the difference in that respect and you don't need to go to that or you can get rid of or vastly reduce the steroid i've certainly had people in that line who improved and one of them you know it's anecdotal went vegetarian because on his own bat because he thought well all this animal food is unhealthy so i'll try vegetarian and after six months he's back and he's okay how's the vegetarian diet going it's like oh I've gone back to low carb because, uh, you know, within a few months I was things were flaring up again. And I, I think, um, again, if someone's eating a lot of junk food, going whole food vegetarian is probably an improvement. Mm. But I, I think going the other direction to a, a whole food, more animal-based diet is actually a better move. So Yeah, yeah. So that's... Um, the experience is that it vastly improves control of inflammatory bowel disease. Anecdotally, some people, particularly with Crohn's disease, have shown remission. So if if people are in trouble, it's something that, you know, can be considered. We don't have the level of evidence that you'd like, but it's certainly worth considering, I think, you know, uh, at this point in time. Yeah, especially especially if the alternative is having parts of your bowel resected surgically, yeah, exactly, or being put on lifelong doses of heavy immunosuppressing drugs, it's it seems like definitely something worth trying. Mm. And we're we're coming up um, almost on a finish time, Andrew. Um, that's been a fascinating insight you've given us. Do you have any closing thoughts about diet or or metabolic syndrome, and and I guess what the best way moving forward is for the majority of people? Well, I think it's um, looking at information sources and I certainly use the ditchthecarbs.com handout, which is a New Zealand pharmacist that one, that runs it. Uh, dietdoctor.com has uh, lots of information and uh, Low Carb Down Under um, has had conferences. I did a lecture on that a few years ago, but it's lots of good uh, lectures there. So really educating yourself is uh, important and, you know, you can replace. Some people are very into food. I'm sort of happy with simple food, but, uh, you know, there are lots of recipes and ways to replace what you're used to with low-carb alternatives without vegetable oil. So there's a big learning process, but I think 
understanding what you're doing is important part of it. So that's looking at those information sources, you know, watching some lectures, um, try and get an understanding of it. Because once you understand what you're trying to achieve, it's much easier to to be compliant, I think. So, um, and, you know, in those places you'll find alternatives to the processed food things that you miss. Uh, it's always more work. Cooking becomes more work in general, um, but I think we've not paid enough attention to our diet and our health has suffered as a consequence. Yeah, I mean, great, great closing thoughts. And uh, I'll have to get you on for another repeat episode because we haven't even talked about your adventures in regenerative farming and your um, yeah agricultural endeavours. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah, well, it led me there. So um, yeah. it's uh, quite quite focused on that at the moment. So I, I, I'm not sure if I'm a font of knowledge, but I'm interested. So Great. Fantastic. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Andrew McIntyre, and um, we'll speak again soon. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.